Today on Between the Lines, a map for success in life and business with Trevor Blake. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick. Trevor built numerous companies, starting with only a few hundred dollars, and turned them into multi-million dollar businesses. But his book, Three Simple Steps, is neither a get-rich-quick plan nor the words of a self-help guru. It is a pragmatic guide that impacts all aspects of life. And although the principles may be simple, as Trevor states, they are not easy, but very effective. I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old. And it was... You do, need to, need, you do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody. Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. The characters, the heroes in this book are seekers of truth in, in a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. I don't get a chance to really talk about what's real. And that is the first Trevor, welcome to Between the Lines. It's a pleasure to see you. Thank you, Barry. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate uh, it. Uh, it's my pleasure. You know, I rarely take a book that says three simple steps or 50 simple steps because I know that nothing's that simple. But what attracted me was the minute I read through it, you let us know these steps may be simple, but they are not easy. That's a very big difference, and people sometimes confuse the two of those things. I think it's a great point because if, to change anything in your life, even if you're only changing three things, to make it a habit, it has to become a lifelong experience. So you have to continuously make those changes. And, and people generally don't have that type of discipline. And it's, it's, it's hard to change our routines and find new time to do these new things and then do them consistently and then make them a habit so that they have some kind of outcome in your life. Now, you wanted us to know from the very beginning that what also makes this difference is that most people write books and then become successful because they wrote a successful book. You took it the other way around. You are an extremely successful entrepreneur who became self-aware of what techniques re were required to make success and then did research upon research and looked inward to yourself. So this is sort of a very opposite approach to these types of books. In fact, I believe the profits of the book don't even go to you. They're going to charity because you don't need the money. So it's a very unique way of looking at things like that. Well, and thank you for saying that. It's true, my profits do go to cancer research and development. I make that um, uh, difference between charity and cancer research and development because some cancer charities are staffed by highly paid executives and I want to make sure that if you've gone to the effort of donating a few do of your hard-earned dollars that it actually does some good. So it goes directly into a laboratory where you can be sure it's progressing some um, cancer treatment uh, research and development. But it, it's true that I mean, I, in my life I've probably read, I don't know, 50 to 100 self-help books and even though the information in all of those books could be valuable, most of them, and most of the best-selling ones too, were written by somebody whose only taste of success is the fact that their book caught on for one reason or another. And I think that always left a sort of question of credibility in my mind. And I've been asked to write this book for many years now because I've been teaching these principles for probably the last 10 to 15 years and watching people's lives transform. It's been an absolute blast and I've been tempted to write it long before now. But for authenticity, I wanted to make sure that I had the credibility to stand up and talk about what it takes to achieve the American dream and to, to show people that the American dream is still available and attainable to everybody. And you can only do that when you've had what other people would decide as success. So selling a company for $100 million after starting it with a few hundred, to most people that, that's identified as success. So I feel that I can now say this is how I did it and now you can too. You add one more dimension. 
you base it also on physics. So you actually take scientific laws and principles and theories and then uh, uh, sort of bolster your argument or your, your thesis with, with them as well. So it, it even takes on a deeper level than just a sort of wait, you know, how to succeed in business kind of thing. Well, I think people expect that these days. We live in a, in a time when people expect to have scientific evidence for some of these more esoteric principles. And one of the challenges I've had with some of those self-help books is that they're, they were, they're based on information that can be up to 200 years old when the laws of physics weren't even commonly understood. And many of them have that sort of uh, warrior mentality about them that you have to go and conquer. You have to go and take something that you want that isn't yours. And nature doesn't work that way. Nature works according to the laws of physics and the laws of physics are effortless. And therefore, moving from nothing to success should be equally effortless. But I do find that a lot of people, whilst they accept the laws of physics exist outside of themselves, they're in nature, they're outside of the window, they don't always understand that they're also part of nature and therefore surely they apply to themselves as well. And so that's why I've included this in this book. And I think it's important to show that some of these techniques are not just based on some guru's idea of how to, how to spend a few minutes, but they're based on physical evidence of what happens to your mind and body when you take these techniques to heart. And they're also not just based to give you success, but they're really based on how to live a more fulfilled life. So, and, and I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that when you do achieve that, and I know you are too, that is one of the keys to a successful life, whether it's financial or not, is how do you apply this to yourself? And, and the key is how, like you said, how do you make it habitual? How do you make it intrinsic, visceral to your own experience? That's the true key when you, when you make that step. That's the, 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 the leap. I think they do come together. I, I, because I think when you, these simple, three simple steps are about all aspects of your life. Now, you know, I, I grew up poor, so my initial motivation was to, was to get out of poverty. And then my next motivation in life, using these three, three simple steps, was to travel because growing up poor, we never had vacations and, and uh, my parents had never been abroad. But we used to spend our Sundays looking through the Sunday supplements in the paper and, and looking at all these, these um, reviews of exotic vacations that people were taking, and it just my, it got my mind going. So I used the three simple steps, first to get out of poverty, then to have a life of, of adventure. And you know, I've been to 56 different countries, I've lived and worked in a number of them, but all the time with a six-figure salary, and that's a good way to travel. That's, a, that's you know, somebody's idea of, of achievement right there. Uh, and then, so if money was never important to me and no reason to have the three simple steps, but then something funny happens when you turn 40, or at least it did for me. And, you know, the last night of my 39th year, I went to bed feeling immortal and fit. And then I woke up the next morning looking six months pregnant and feeling totally <laughs> vulnerable. And, uh, and, and so I thought, you know, I need to pay attention to my financial future. And so I turned the three simple steps to financial independence. And that's when I started my first company. So it wasn't like I started out as a poor kid saying I want to be rich. That was never a motivation for me. I wanted, I wanted to enjoy life and see what life had to offer first. And I do think the three all come together. Let's start with step one. And that is getting out of the quicksand. And as we've seen in all the classic jungle movies, we know that when you struggle to get out of the quicksand, you end up getting deeper into it, which is the principle that you use here. So let's go through that first step and, 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 and the steps to the steps, because there are steps within steps. This is not just right. get out of the quicksand, you're done. It doesn't work that way. But let's talk about that first part about when you feel you are being drawn under, when you feel you are going through this, struggling may make that situation worse. And you have to do, in your power, everything 
not to struggle, and you can see right away why that may be a simple thing to say, but so not easy to achieve. And, and primarily because our natural instinct is to think about what we don't want. So, so when you're struggling in the quicksand, and, and you, you know, a good example I use in Three Simple Steps is, is, is a lot of people are struggling under heavy debt. And, and it's a horrible feeling, and I've been there myself. And, and the problem with that is you think about the debt all the time. And, and thoughts, everything in life is energy, and thoughts are no different. Thoughts are just another form of energy. And, and the book talks about the laws of physics that show that energy and matter are equivalents and interchangeable. And therefore, every thought you've ever had has the potential to become part of your reality, to one day return to you as a physical experience of what you're thinking about. So unfortunately, if we spend all of our time thinking about what we don't want, we end up getting more of what we don't want because our thoughts go out and they come back repeating the same thing. And that's why it feels like quicksand. So the harder you struggle and the harder you get desperate, the harder you think about what you're against and what you don't have, the more you sink into that because life just gives you what you're thinking about. It's not, not doing it to be cruel. It's a law of physics. It happens. And so the secret is to change that thought process so that you start to focus more on what you want rather than what you don't have or don't want. And it's that little change and if you can do it consistently, it makes a huge difference. And before you know it, something great turns up and you're out of quicksand. Well, you say that little change is, uh, I'll use your words exactly, reclaim your mentality. That's the first major step once you're to get out of the sinking feeling, to get out of that quicksand, is to literally readjust your mentality. And it's not as you say, think positive and all good things are happening. It, it's not that kind of a thing. So explain it. In fact, I believe it stemmed from your mother, Audrey, is that her name, correct? It, correct. It, it stems from her way of looking at the problems she faced and how she was able to look at a situation and just flip it enough to see, as you said before, the positive side to it, not, uh, I, what, positive almost implies that there was a negative, so I wanna be careful, but to see the alternate side to it so that you're able to make the mental adjustment and obviously the quicker you can make it, the quicker you'll get out of the quicksand. And very well put, but the, the key thing is not what you think, but how you react to what you think. And the reason I make that, de that um, determination is I'm not a big fan of many self-help books, particularly ones that go on about positive thinking, because I think it's an illusion. Our thoughts are instantaneous. Our brain works at the speed of light. And so if you see something you don't like or you hear somebody say something that you think is unfair, your immediate thought, your instantaneous thought is negative and usually hardwired negative. Nothing you can do about it. That's how the brain works. You don't have to beat yourself up over it. So you have no control over the thought process. What you do have control over is how you then react to that thought. And that's what I observed in my mother's life because uh, when I was eight years old, she was given six months to live. And it was in a time, 1968, when if a doctor gave you six months to live, well, you went home and you died six months later because the doctor's word is, is the word of God. It was in those days anyway. And I was there with her when she, she looked him in the eye and she said, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. I want more time. I want to see my children grow up and leave the nest safely. And she meant every word of it. And that was the first time in my life that I saw what unshakable belief looked like. And then I lived in a situation where my accent identified me as foreign and you can't hide your shabby clothes. If you've got, my shoes were all colors, not sizes. So, so you, you can't hide that stuff. And that's like putting um, you know, a, a, a bullseye on your back to an extent. And so I was a target of sectarian bullying at that time, and it was pretty severe. And I did all the things that you're supposed to do. I fought when you're supposed to fight, and I ran away when you're supposed to run away. Nothing changed. So I went and got out of everybody's way, and I hid in the public library. 
And I, there was a section in the public library where they had all of these autobiographies of self-made men and women, and I became an, a sort of an addict of reading those. And I saw the same thing in those historical heroes, that they were able to develop this unshakable belief. And they were able to do it because they reacted in a way that the society around them didn't expect. They were supposed to behave to their poverty in a certain way. They were supposed to behave to their abuse in a certain way. And they refused to do that. They reacted differently and positively. And as a young kid, without yet getting any cynicism in my system, I was, I, my attitude was, well, if it worked for Henry Ford and for Andrew Carnegie and Madam C.J. Walker, and my mother, who's just told an oncologist that he's wrong, then it'll work for me. And that's when I started to make that subtle change between how you think and how you react then to how you think. And as a result of that, my, my whole life, even, even as a kid, started to change. And so in doing that, you mentioned reclaiming mentality. That's all getting back to the point of reclaiming mentality, which is to find inside yourself again that pioneering spirit with which we were all born, but for one reason or another, we, it gets suppressed in our lives. And when you do that, you get in touch with the individual, the person you remember who you were as a child when you used to daydream and got lost somewhere along the journey. You get back to that individual again. And that, that, that you have to do that because it's impossible to become self-made or probably impossible to reinvent yourself in middle age if the opinions of other people are determining the decisions you make for yourself because you may, you may have a wonderful opportunity to make a strong decision that could change your life, but you'll listen to somebody else's opinion of whether you're capable or whether it's the right time or whether the economy is in the right status or something like that. So you have to get back to that individual. Well, one of the ways you give us an example of, and you use Seve Ballesteros, so I, I, I'm a golf fan. I, I mean, I never, this is one of those things, I have never played the sport, but I just love it, you know? And I loved, and Seve, when he passed away, in fact, I was heartbroken because I know how much he affected especially the Brits and everybody, even though he was a Spaniard, I believe, everybody in Europe because there was nobody like him at the time. And one of the things he did to protect his mentality was, as you said, he envisioned a glass shield around him. And that was a very, it stuck with you very deeply and, and, and left an impression because of the mental imagery that, that also went along with it, which is important too. You said even when you want to keep these mentalities within you, sometimes the best way is to map them out on your tongue. I believe that right. was the word. So this is a sense, it's a word, it's a concept, but you can see how important it is if you're going to not let those outside forces determine what you become. Or, or determine how you think about yourself. And um, I was about the same age as Sevi Ballesteros when he first burst onto the scene. I think he was 17 and I was 16. And uh, I'm a big fan of golf too. I don't play the game either. But, but, <laughs> I but think I, we must be the only <laughs> two. Because every know, time I, I tell people I love watching golf, he goes, they go, what's your handicap? I, go, I don't play. They go, what? You watch golf and you don't play? <laughs> you know, the thing was, growing up poor, I never, I never even held a, a, a club. <laughs> no, it. uh, but I, I love the game because of the, it's, it's such an individual sport. I like tennis too, and I've never played tennis. But I, I, I loved Bjorn Borg, or, you know, when, he, when, when John McEnroe was screaming obscenities at him, how he managed to stay calm and in his zone. And what I loved about Seve Ballesteros was, was how he was able to um, protect himself from the hostility of the crowd. And they were very hostile then because here was this new kid on the block going up against Jack Nicholas, a bit like Andy Murray going up against Federer. Half the Brits prefer Federer to, to Murray. They just love Federer. And in England, everybody loved Jack Nicholas. So they gave this, this young kid, Ballesteros, a pretty tough time. A and he described on TV how, how he had been taught by his parents, who were also good golfers, to imagine this invisible shield coming down from the sky and covering him and mentally protecting him from all that hostility. And I thought, well, that's fantastic. And I first used that to protect myself from the name calling in school. So people would, had some pretty awful names ab about my ethnicity, believe it or not, being English, it, people find that hard to believe, but it happens all over the world. And uh, so my ethnicity and my, my status in society was a good source of name calling. I used a mental shield 
and it didn't bother me anymore. And because it didn't bother me, my whole persona and attitude changed. And, and if, if I could do a, go back and do a clinical trial, I could show you the, the, the pre-shield school score against the post-shield school score, and, and there would be night and day, and I became basically top student after that. Let's go to step two, because I want to make sure we at least touch on all three for sure. We're not going to get deep into them, but at least get, we're going to hit them for sure. Well, we'll get as deep as anybody does, actually. Moments of insight. That's step two. And, and this is part of that rewiring system. So they really do go hand in hand. You can't go to step two without step one in a certain way. And yet you say step two is one of the most difficult ones for us to grasp, because it sort of goes against our, our universal grain, so to speak. It's, it, this step, I get more emails and, and uh, feedback on this step than, than the, any of the three steps, and it's because those that get it and those that make it a habit, their lives transform magically. Those that don't get it really struggle with step one and step three as a result of that. And, and the reason I say you have to do these steps in order is to, it's, it's no different to, um, to baking a cake. You've got to, put the, you've got to cream the butter and sugar first before you put the flour in, otherwise you end up with wallpaper paste. So, so you, you do have to follow steps for certain things. This is the law of physics. You've got to control your mentality first so that when you put yourself in step two, to put yourself in a situation where you have this moment of insight that separates the maybe mediocre life from the incredible life, and that sometimes that's all it is, that one moment of, of, uh, of insight, the Einstein's moment when he, the, the theory of relativity just came to him in a second when he was practicing the technique in, in, or a technique in step two. Um, if you have that moment of insight and you haven't controlled your mentality, then the minute you leave wherever you had that moment of insight and you join the real world and everybody is telling you how, how horrible everything is, that moment of insight gets lost. You have to, you have to know that, that I've had this great idea and now I have the personality and the mentality control to see this idea come to fruition. So you have to do it one and two like, like that. The step two is that I get more comments from people saying that they want to get a better job they want to change their job, they want to go back to school, they want to start some art course, or they want to start their own company. But I just don't have any good ideas, is what I hear all the time. I hear that every week. And I know how that feels, because when I wanted to get out of poverty, I was thinking, well, what do I do? I live in, the, the, only, the only job around is to cut trees or, or look after cattle. So I needed to find this, I needed an idea. And, and I saw in the autobiographies that uh, you know Ford and Carnegie and Samuel Colt and, and um, people like Emerson, they all had a way of taking themselves far from the madding crowd and finding a few moments of peace and doing nothing but just sitting and letting the brain work. And I never, I never understood it as a kid. I used to think that was like meditation and I've, I've tried to meditate in my life and I'm hopeless at it. My mind's going crazy all the time. And so I call this technique taking quiet time and I've, I've taken it from those brilliant self-made uh, men and women. And, and once I got into the study of physics, what I realized is happening is the opposite to what most people think. So most people would think that you're slowing your brain down to be calm, but it's the opposite of that. It's, the f it's probably the only time during the day when you don't distract your brain to do menial tasks like trying to get my fat thumbs to work on my, my iPhone. You let your brain work on its own for 20 minutes and it's working at the speed of light. And that's the only time during the day we allow ourselves to work at full capacity. And so step two is critical so that you can have that great idea that gets the spark going that can change your life. Well, because you say those ideas, as Einstein called it, the cosmic library, they're all out there waiting to come out. So if you give yourself that time, it's not like you have to be thinking of anything. Uh, that's what happens. It just bubbles up to the surface. Yeah, and it's the opposite. Think of nothing. And, th and they will come to the surface. It's very, it's very well put. And that's exactly, exactly what it is. Um, you know, you have, but most people 
struggle with this because to you know we work so we, we think we're so busy and there's so much noise in our lives and most people jump out of bed and immediately start making breakfast or take the dogs for a walk or put the TV on to get their dose of daily news or something like that it's, it seems to be incredibly hard for people to say you know what before I do all that I'm gonna give myself 20 minutes just for me 1% of my day just for me and let my brain just do what it's, what it's meant to do and then I can rejoin the world and you're very clear that because these steps may be simple but not easy you want everyone to know that as they're going through this, do not blame yourself. That is, again, part of the turning of the words into positive nature, part of changing the mentality. And in step two, if you can't even find the time, don't worry about it. You'll find five minutes instead of 10 minutes or 20, you know, even though you must do it, don't blame yourself. Right, and we're all very good at that, beating ourselves yeah. up. Oh, I, I didn't do it well. It's my favorite sport. My mind is going crazy, you know, <laughs> and I, I need to calm down and like, so it, it doesn't matter because you don't have to understand how the laws of physics work. And the beauty of the laws of physics is you don't even have to believe in them. They're gonna work anyway, they exist. And so, so long as you do the technique, you don't need to know how or why it's working for you. And, you, and I've, I've often taken my quiet time in the morning and after 20 minutes thinking, well, that's a waste of time. And then that day I've had the most brilliant idea. And I smack myself in the forehead and say, well, why didn't I think of that before? I've been doing this for 20 years now. So now I make the connection between taking that quiet time and a great idea showing up when I'm distracted doing something else. And I think some of the challenge people have is that they, you live in a society of, 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 of uh, instant satisfaction. And so they do quiet time and they think, well, I didn't have a good idea right then, I won't do it again. And you have to do it on a consistent basis, make it part of your life. And, and most people who do that are blown away by the ideas that come to them. And they wonder where they come from and why didn't I have them before? I'm gonna have to hit step three because we're almost out of time and I don't wanna miss this because I think it's, it's key. Step three is transforming ideas into achievements. And I tripled starred this. Intentions rather than goals. And I want you to explain that, but I also need to ask you one question. Throughout this entire chapter, you capitalize the I in intention. It's the only step you do it in. It's nothing else. So there, it gives it even extra added importance. It's capital I in intentions, and I want it, your take on that. It's a packet of energy is what an intention is, and it, an intention is a goal with all doubt about its achievement removed. It's very easy to say, it's not so easy to, to make that part of your life. And the distinction in step three is that we have, we've lived in a society where the warrior mentality seems to dominate. It's a, it's, a, it's a male-dominated society. It's not as bad as it used to be, but it has still got some way to go. You know, to be successful, of course you need to have the skills to hunt and gather, that goes without saying. But you also need the intuition to sense danger and notice opportunities. And it's that balance of the intuitive approach and the warrior-like approach that achieves success. It's getting that balance right. And so I've made a distinction between intention setting and goal setting. Goal setting has that warrior-like mentality where it's like an Indiana Jones adventure. Uh, you have to step over all the bodies of the poor souls who didn't make it and overcome all these tasks that are thrown your way and then eventually you may find your treasure that wasn't yours to begin with and steal it and take it home. Laws of physics don't work that way. You know, a, 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 a seed doesn't think about how do I become a flower? It becomes a flower. It's, it's, it's a natural effortless process. And so step three is about getting more to that sense of effortlessness whereby you have the balance between intuitive power and warrior-like power so that you can have um, 
a more rounded approach. So you can, and, and what that does is it raises your sense of emotion from you no longer have to desire something, you no longer have to believe something, but you get to what I call a sense of knowing. And this is what my, my, my two inspirations in my life, my mother and, and my wife for the last 30 years have taught me because they have had that, and they have this sense of knowing whereby they will, they will look for something that seems impossible. Like my mother saying, I'm gonna live another 14 years. It seems impossible to everybody else, but they had that knowing they've made this decision and it's gonna happen. And my wife has had the same experience twice. She's been told it's time to pack up and, and leave this earth. And she said, no, I'm not done nagging Trevor yet. And, and she's actually <laughs> said that to the doctors. And she has that sense of knowing. And I've observed these amazing women and in my historical heroes like Madam C.J. Walker, they have this incredible sense of knowing. So if you're a man who's mainly warrior mentality, then you can develop more intuition to get that balance. And if you are more intuitive, where you're sitting around too much and not doing enough, not achieving enough, then you can get more of that warrior mentality. And that's what step three of Three Simple Steps is about, that balance. Trevor, I'm blessed also with a wife like that, so I know we are in good hands. Our time is up. I want to end with your words and also let people know by your words that it's never too late to start. As you say, history shows there is never a bad time to reinvent yourself don't get left behind. Thank you, Trevor, for keeping us in the now and not letting us get left behind. Thank you, bye. My pleasure, and thank you all for joining us. Now, before Trevor leaves, I'd like to leave you with these few more words from three simple steps. We must consider words as magic, magic bullets that carry the power to create or destroy. Cast like a spell from a voice, pen, or keyboard, they have the ability to make or break us. They also have the power to energize or diminish. I'm Barry Kibrick. Words are magic bullets. Cast them carefully, for between those words lies the ability to make or break us. So choose those that will energize you and those around you. Thank you so much, Trevor. Thank you, Barry. If you'd like to get in touch with us, want a DVD or transcript of our show, catch an episode online, or receive our weekly updates, go to www.klcs.org btl. captioning for Between the Lines with Barry Kibrick is made possible by Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, ranked fourth best regional university in the West by U.S. News and World Report, and dedicated to the encouragement of learning.